by way of commercial, we have now come to the final piece in this multi-part series. I am happy. Not so much I felt that I was belaboring a point, but I felt like now that I've laid the groundwork, we can now assess and look at John 1, 14 in its proper context. Because granted, a lot of propositions is found, especially considering for such a small verse, it holds a lot of weight. A lot of men died and died in their sins from a misrepresentation of this verse. And that's not something to cry or shun at because their lack of understanding this caused their foot. As Jonathan Edwards stated, duly rightly, their foot had slipped in due time. So to continue, we have now the Gospel of John, John 1, 14, and we've come to the verse of which we would now provide the exegesis. The verse states once again, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, glory as of the only Son, from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. Shine now to the Lord our God in prayer. Father, we give thanks for this Sabbath day, for many are still seeking for the Messiah, and yet you revealed him by your word. We thank you, Father, that you have opened our eyes, ears, and hearts to see, hear, and believe. For by your Spirit we know the identity of the Messiah. Therefore, be with your servant as he feed and teach your sheep. And to them, may they come with a childlike love and a willing mind to receive your word. Since Christ's holy, precious name we pray. Amen. Now, again, remember, this was broken into three parts. In particular, now you see the third part. Because I wanted to make sure that this doctrine of the hypostatic union was palpable. Of taking in this information... You should be and well equipped to hold conversations with various others who come and challenge your faith. I think a lot of times people feel like they are not well equipped to handle the conversations and or questions you may get from Facebook or work or various others who speak in a conversation. You just kind of curious as to how am I supposed to answer this, especially knowing what I believe and know. So we should definitely take confidence that, you know, the approach here was to make sure you're able to not only digest this, but able to convey and defend your faith properly. With all that being said, again, I am not trying to belabor points, but I think by repetition, just to bring your mind back into full context. Remember, this verse is now made known that God, the Son, has come in the form of man. The Apostle, by good and necessary deduction, has written this up gospel to correct wicked blasphemies. So the wicked blasphemies of Ibian and Serinthius are nothing new, especially when we get to some of the other heresies this verse has also corrected. Of the first passages and part of this sermon series, we look to distinguish the two natures in Christ 
and holding his office of mediator in the Old Testament. That way you will see there is harmony, unity coming from the Old to the New to show his coming as to what the Old Testament states believed. And then, uh, when we were last, we showed the communication of the two properties, the Godhead and the manhood, in good detail, so that way you understand how it's capsulated in the office of mediator, which Christ, bearing the title holder, Jesus Christ, holds. Lastly, in that same particular part of sermon, we looked at now the union, for which, what is the end conclusion? Why was it necessary for both the Christ to be fully God and fully man? And it was to show that upon his ascension, upon his ascension, holding an honor, the greatest honor that can be achieved, to sit at the right hand of his father, he made well, just as I brought to you the end of that sermon with 1 Corinthians 15, in particular, verse number 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also subject it to the one, the Father, who subjected all things to him. So by conclusion, that God may be all in all. The sight, the understanding of where we're going with this should not be lost. What Adam did in the garden by Breaking that bridge between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ had made anew. With all that being said now, it is time to get to the fun part, which is now the exegesis upon this verse. Now, mind you, we see here the various clauses that are being broached by the verse in and of itself. And again, I even tried to tackle the first portion of this clause, and the word became flesh at the very beginning of this sermon series. Why? So that at the very least, you understand where we're, what we're trying to achieve. By a reminder, within the Christian faith, particularly the Reformed faith, we want to maintain and understand that the divine nature was conjoined and united with the human nature. That, again, the Son of God became the Son of Man, of which the entire properties of each nature, the Godhead and the manhood, still remain entire. But the two being in the one personhood, which is Christ, all shows that it necessitated for the mediator to take upon these two natures. And remember, I brought to you by aid an analogy that Calvin had brought in regards to scene dynamics of how a man is constructed. You know full and well, especially in this day and age, when people can't figure out what gender they are, so every day they're figuring out whether they're this or that, or they can't figure out if life begins in the womb, but we know by the scripture how man is defined. They have a body, they have a soul, but neither are mixed, neither are intermingled, but it is necessary for them to constitute one in terms to determine 
Amen. Therefore, of this we understand, and continuing under the clause, that the word became flesh. Remember the Christ had a body that hasn't been prepared for me. Now, because of the skeptics who will come to you and say, but this is stated in Psalms 40. I went through and showed you through detail and passing to show how there is harmony between the old and the new in regards to this passage. So I'm not going to belabor on that point. But of the which, when the scripture states the word became flesh, it is indeed to show of which a body has been prepared for the Messiah and in the opposite it gave way to the Messiah coming in his theophany of which this visible Manifestation to humankind was seen in the form of man. By remembrance, he did not change into flesh, nor did he intermingled. He appeared as it was stated in the form of man. The first of which the proto-evangelium, how he is to come into the world. Genesis 3, 15, the Lord states, And I will make enemies of you and the woman, of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. A notation here to see the coming Messiah coming in a particular theophany. Again, Isaiah in chapter 9, verse 6, he states, No, for a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And of which his name shows that honor of being called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So then likewise, of which to see the union between the two natures. I brought to you and broached to you again why he was fully God and fully man and all its involvement with the title holder by the name of Christ. His name gave a foresight to what he was to do and especially to be the Messiah. His coming was not slack. It had meaning. You know, you you don't want to approach the Bible sometimes. I think people try to try to make emotional arguments. They don't want to think in the logistics of the situation. Because for him to come and to perfect a work or do a work, why would he want to do it? I'm always confused. And I'm not trying to be pragmatic. It's his work cannot come void. But you know what we take for granted? He's come and ascended. Those in the Old Testament had a promise only to lean on. They didn't know what he looked like. Though they knew he was going to come between, behind a certain lineage. They didn't understand of which he was to come in regards to what? Living in a manger? Now granted, the prophets were speaking of his foreshadowing and forecoming. But granted, you know, uh, 95% of Israel was not listening. But nonetheless... They were leaning on a promise. So when you're hearing things, like for example, Isaiah 7, 14, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. This is a promise. This is something they only, this is all they had to lean on. 
And behold, a virgin. So now, all of a sudden, every woman that was in Israel was thinking, I got to be in my best behavior. I might give birth to the Messiah. Do you see the gravity of the situation at foot? And now, by knowing the name of the, the young child, he will be called Emmanuel. And by the Spirit, to work in the apostles, to show in the gospel, by conveyment, for the comfort of the church, to explain what Isaiah gave. I love to see the harmony from the old to the new, of which in Matthew 1, 21 to 23, we see, she will give a birth to a son, and she shall name him Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. And of which the Spirit, not leaving us at fault, even states, and I quote by verse 23, oh, I'm sorry, at verse 22, as it continues, now all this took place so that what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet would be fulfilled. The promise that they held on to has now come to manifestation that's what they're seeing and of which the spirit shows behold the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they shall name him Emmanuel which translate God is with us simply put to close this particular clause Christ in particular of his human nature consists of a true body and a reasonable soul that cannot be negotiated. As well, his divine nature is, is in which the Godhead dwells. Paul makes it known by Colossians 2 verse 9. If you have the New American Standard Bible, it states, For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. But perhaps you have the New King James Version or the Geneva 1599. It reads in this, For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. See, simply put, God is wholly found in Christ. And therefore, we as men, we should not contend. We should not desire for something better or more excellent than to see that God has manifested himself to us fully and is perfected in Christ. Segling now, let us come to the next clause, which is, he dwelt among us. But I hear the apostle is giving an introduction to the timeline of which the Messiah is to set foot on earth. Now granted, it could have been in his divine counsel that he is the second Adam, of which the first Adam lived on earth for 930 years, he could have taken that same step. Now, couldn't he? But to show that he had a purpose, again, that his coming did not come slack, he had a time to render. And the notion of which the apostle is giving here it shows even by a little translation in the Greek, and I'll read it in English, he tabernacled among us. And it does not mean that his body just served as an abode for the Christ, but is that God, the Son, taking upon himself that title holder and coming on earth, he will now go ahead and effect the duties of the office of mediator that's appointed to him. 
And being that he is fully God and fully man, he now can converse face to face. The reality, face to face with his people. Unlike in Exodus, where Moses had to take off the sandals because he was on holy ground. Unlike on Mount Sinai, where he had to put on a veil because God is too holy. The shine and brightness that availed from him was just too much. God the Son walked on this earth and spoke with his people face to face. That is the beauty of this reality. Now, it allows us to segue here and properly. We saw his glory. And note, unlike to the quickening of one's heart by the Spirit, the apostle makes a note here that all men might be held might have beheld the glory of the Christ. That means they saw the miracles. They saw the healings. They saw the teachings. But yet, they were left in stupor. They were still blind. The Messiah stated in Matthew 13, 13, they claim to hear, but they do not hear. They claim to see, but they do not see, nor do they understand. Why? Because the apostle is making note, including of those who were of his 12, well, the 11, because we know what that one apostle decided to do. But that those who were few, their eyes were opened by the Spirit. And that is the glory. The Spirit opening your eyes to reveal to you that that man that stood in front of them was God in the flesh. An amazing revealment. Calvin notes here, Christ exhibited in his person something far more noble and excellent. It follows that the majesty of God was not annihilated, though it was surrounded by flesh, and it was indeed concealed under the low condition of the flesh, but so as to cause its blunder to still be seen. Hmm. The fact of God the Son and his theophanies in the old. I bring to you Exodus thirty three eighteen. Here Moses yearned to see the glory of the Lord. And what does the Lord say in kind by verse 20? Because Moses is still born of Adam in sin, right? Still, he's been converted and believes in the one true God. He's still in sin. So what does our Lord say to him? It starts by verse 20. But he said, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see my face and live. Verse 21, and the Lord said, here is a place by me, and you shall stand on the rock. By verse 22, so it shall be, while my glory passes by, 
that I will put you in the cleft of the rock, and I'll cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. See where Moses has come from to what the apostles were privy to. That glory to see God in the flesh. <sighs> Rather now, of which the apostles show the elected ones, and that means the church. No more promises. You don't have to worry about the promise. He stood right in front of you. He was right there in the flesh. They beheld him. And for the 12, well, for the men who were elected to take upon that event, I don't think you could put a price on that. I don't think no amount of money can be paid to take on that event to see him face to face. Hmm. Segoing now to the glory as of the only son from the father. Or if you had the new King James version, the glory as of the only begotten of the father. Here, a book and stamp is made of Christ beholding divinity. Now, we have seen it throughout our process through going through the first 13 verses. And the way that I've broken them up especially from a sermon perspective, it was trying to give you a context of which how to see God, particularly the Son and His attributes. We see and understood that He preceded before even time began, before the world came into existence. And that life does not exist outside of Him, for He is the essence of life. And of which coming into His own, that a lineage has been prepared, His own did not receive Him. But yet, through all this plan and the economy of salvation and with the way it played out through the dispensation of the Bible, we see a messenger was set to prepare a way. So therefore, this by which the apostles giving here is going to book in again the distinct personalities of God the Son and God the Father. For what greater honor can one achieve than to be begotten and only, with the sense of emphasis, only begotten of the Father? No man can say that. Lest they knew God personally. Of which God the Son exclaims and self-attests again and again and again and again in this gospel. Calvin states here, he calls him the only begotten because he is the only son of God by nature. As if he would place him above men and angels and will claim for him alone what belongs to no creature. John Gill states, whereas he is called God's own son, the, God, the son of the same nature with him, and as here the only begotten of the father, begotten by him in the same nature. 
So everything the apostle has given us is consistent. It flows and it shows through that unity that he's trying to convey by argument. God the Son has always been there. He's still there and he will always be there. Now, <laughs> there is no other, as John Gill wrote, no other than the Son of God who from the Godhead can take this honor. But of which this particular statement that, and I quote again, <laughs> That he is the only, the glory as the only begotten of the Father. This statement and clause completely denies modalism. I'm going to say it again. The fact that the Son of God being the only begotten of the Father completely denies and commits Modalism to heresy. Why? Let me define for you first what is modalism. Modalism, as defined, especially given that the humanist even also agrees, is that God is to be one. So they don't deny that God is one. But in his working and through quote-unquote, different modes or manifestation of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they were without limiting his modes and manifestations. So, to put it in context, so you understand. If God is revealed in the Old Testament, especially as a creator and lawgiver, he is called Father. Then, when God is then revealed as the Savior, as in, in Jesus Christ, he is then molded into the Son. And then, of which, when God is revealed as the one who sanctifies, he is of the Spirit. And modalism is actually the precursor to two particular ideals that still trend to this day. In the Western Church, it is Sabellianism. And the Eastern Church is Patri-Panzianism. But there in particular, especially in this country, one particular denomination that holds fast to this theology. Oneness Pentecostals. And to their detriment, the Oneness Pentecostals do not disagree with the divinity of Jesus Christ. And they understand him of this and this uh, alike. But what's so interesting was the denomination took a turn in April of 1913 when a Canadian minister by the name of Robert Edward McAllister showed through a misinterpretation of baptism, it should be solely in the name of Jesus Christ alone. Now, why would he come to this argument? If you have your Bibles, I'd rather suggest you take these notes so that way when you come into discussions with them, you understand what verses they are misinterpreting. First, Acts 2, 37 through 42. Next, Acts 8, 
12 through 17. Next, Acts 10, 44 through 47. And lastly, Acts 19, 1 through 7. And if you get a chance when you have time, when you read them, you can see where they're coming from. They're all baptizing in the name of Jesus Christ alone. But you know the one thing you seem to miss in the argument? They never like to take it in context. Because if you read the consistent argument throughout all those passages, the apostles are always making an ask, what were you baptized in? And they, with good intention, said, because they were following the baptisms that John the Baptist was providing, well, we were baptized in the name of Jesus. Tell us about this Holy Spirit. Of which, upon the Lord's ascension, in Matthew 28, 19, he makes very clear how the mode was to operate. Now, granted, you know, we still have the discussion between brothers, whether it's sprinkling or submersion. But aside from the point, the miracle at work, the rite of the ritual is stated by the Lord as he makes his ascension. You acknowledge the Father, you acknowledge the Son, and you acknowledge the Holy Ghost. And of which, you would think that would be pretty clear to the oneness Pentecostal brethren. No, that's not. Because, based on this verse, the minister from Canada goes on to say, well, I do agree that the Messiah said this, but we just can't deny the speakings of being baptized in the name of Jesus only. So then I mind, and I bring back, if this were to be so, why does the apostles make the correction? For if their entry into the kingdom was a right, there would be no need to speak as if the impressions of the name and the evocement of the Holy Spirit had to be involved. See again, the logic and reasoning behind the way the Messiah operates. It is not loss. When we read the Bible, if it's one thing you have to come to an agreement on, if you don't understand something, take your time to understand it. That's a valid thing I think that a lot of people seem to lose touch of. In fact, you should really even go to more learned people if something doesn't make sense. Do not spill at the mouth because then your words come with no wisdom. But do you remember when I first came and I started this whole process of the hypostatic union? And I had broached why I wanted to take the time that I did in taking it. This is to show you just how much study actually goes into actually doing a sermon. Especially when you think about the gravity of which your sermon can hold. And before I even began, I made sure people understood. If those especially watching in the telecast that I wanted to be diligent and to show myself approved. That this doctrine carried weight. And especially, and especially 
First Timothy 4.16. Pay, pay close attention to yourself and to the teaching. Persevere in these things for as you do this, you will save both yourselves and those who hear you. See, the oneness Pentecostals didn't take that into account now, did they? Because the gravity lost in properly understanding the office of Christ being the mediator, I said it before and I'll say it again. To have this doctrine wrong is a detriment to your faith. You just can't go out there and say that, well, Christ died for everybody then that means that his death come invalid because we know there's people in hell. Or do you take consideration and gravity of what you're trying to say in order so that one, you don't actually offend God. You don't want to be the one associated with facilitating heresy. So when I look at this man's name, I do not know what to say of his salvation. Salvific estate. I could definitely tell you he's in the hands of the Lord. But of which, when he speaks heresy, and it's considered damnable, it's a detriment to a lot of other people, not just himself. <sighs> Seeing this, in continuing through our sermon here, I just wanted to make a point of emphasis, especially in regards to the fact that we are not to come slack when it comes to the doctrine. And I feel bad for the witness Pentecostals because it is quite apparent and quite clear that the Trinity does take hold in regards to one salvific estate. Because of which, your, the ritual of which you are coming into the faith, you must acknowledge it. It is acknowledged by those who revive the mode. And you, having faith in Christ, that aspect of your entry into the kingdom involves all three at work. So they don't change into this, that, and the third. They already determined from the beginning before time began how they were going to plan salvation. Hebrews 1, 5 through 6 notes the harmony that the scripture possessed at the personal properties of the three persons in the Godhead. It reads by verse 5 in particular, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Not to be lost. Can not put any more emphasis onto this. And I thank the apostle for making it quite clear, even by the point of the actual verse that the Trinity is at work. Especially in particular the distinction between the Father and the Son. It's almost like you could, atheists could be back very pragmatic, walk up to one of these 
a particular uh, modalist and say, well, how does the father begotten the father? And all of a sudden he walks away ashamed and he leaves the faith because he can't answer his own contradiction. See? See why this is important? You have to be able to give a defense. You should not come slack. And Calvin, <laughs> he states it here. He even makes it more clearly in thinking the apostle that the word, as particular, the speech, was begotten by God before all ages, always dwelt with the Father. At closing here, we have our last clause, full of grace and truth. And in considering what the majesty of Christ is now apparent, what we have now conveyed to see this last clause that the apostle is now giving, full of grace, full of truth, what does it entail? That Christ is the inexhaustible fountain of grace and of truth. And it's consistent, remember, by verses 4 and 5 is the essence of life. And by verses 6 through 9, in particular, we note that he is the light unto mankind. But yet they did not comprehend it, now did they? That's because, again, he came into his own, but his own did not receive him. Because, like the Messiah is going to say in John, you can't come to me unless the Father draws you. Now, I like what we see in other verses, you know, in particular, full of grace and full of truth. Stephen was also full of grace and full of power. But when did he exhibit this? He exhibited after the Christ took his ascension properly at the right hand of God the Father. And being given that amount of gravity and gifting to which his measure of faith reached that particular honor and level. If you have your Bibles, and I'm not going to read it, but definitely take note of the break in his sermon to the officials and his day. For he begins by speaking of the calling of Abraham. He goes to show how the patriarchs were established in Egypt to the point of God delivering Israel through Moses to Israel's rebellion in the wilderness to the show that God the Son now has now come as God's true tabernacle to Israel's continued rebellion. It's amazing that the scripture then states as he's taking the stones to his body and he's looking up in the sky, the sky opens up and scripture states by Luke's account, but he being full of the Holy Spirit gazed into the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing again at the right hand of God. Being that Christ was the first fruits of the resurrection, it is only from him we have grace and we have truth. And for Stephen, for him to speak and see and speak of that magnitude, he always looked to him because it was from Christ that we draw grace 
and truth. Our pastors said it by remembrance. Faith is just an instrument, but Christ is the substance. And of which the apostle, and I get, I'm telling you, it's not a belaboring of points. It's just as a reminder to understand, because you got to remember, this gospel was correcting bad heresy. And he's an overseer. He does not want to see his people perish. So he's going to give them the right doctrine. Note the intent here. So of which his words don't come invalid. His words have meaning. And for us to properly assert this, now our faith shall be strengthened. After taking on this series, we should now come to a full realization that now we can see the gravity of which God the Son coming into this world, taking that imprint, was able to undo what Adam did in the garden. He was now bridging the gap. Shall we now let the Lord our God in prayer?